The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Bandy Lee, who is one of the psychiatrists from Yale who wrote the dangerous case of Donald Trump way back in the beginning of this whole ordeal and now we're sort of looking to her and other experts saying, who maybe you had a point. Doctor, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. So one of the first questions I had for you um, is, you know, I think before the insurrection, there was a lot of sort of discussion around the risks of violence, the threat of violence, uh, the rhetoric of Donald Trump and how there could be violence. But I always say now, like, after an insurrection has happened, um, there's no longer sort of a hypothetical scenario under which Donald Trump could incite violence. He already has done that. Um, were you watching on January 6th like, I told you so? Is that a thought that you had that day? Well, I don't have a TV, so I wasn't watching oh. anything. But <laughs> That's probably smart. But I did receive a barrage of messages Uh email, phone calls, text messages. You were right. So does that make you feel like perhaps frustrated that we didn't listen to what you were trying to tell us sooner? Or does it make you feel maybe more resolute in this moment that you want to try to communicate this, you know, the very urgent message to us now to prevent further violence? Definitely, there is further violence to be prevented. And in fact, the worst violence is to come. And so uh, I wouldn't say um, frustrated at the moment of January 6th, but uh, frustrated since the very moment when uh, the American Psychiatric Association stepped in and silenced all of us. Within three months of our publication of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump in 2017, uh, we were the number one topic of national conversation. And I was invited to all uh, broadcast um, network and cable TV programs. There's no major program I wasn't invited to. And then the American Psychiatric Association stepped in calling us unethical rather than uh, stepping up to the societal obligation that we had because as physicians, we do have a societal obligation. Uh, but since they've done that, uh, the networks, I suppose, were felt afraid and uh, shut down within weeks. And we have not been able to have that national discourse since. So in terms of regrets, regrets started uh, early in that presidency. And there's not one aspect of the presidency in terms of its dangers and spread of dangers that we did not predict and accurately assess from the very beginning. 
And you mentioned, obviously, that the American Psychiatry Association, um, you know, put out a, a statement criticizing this entire thing you're trying to do. And one of the distinctions I want to make here is that in the dangerous case of Donald Trump, one of the things that you do not do is you're not diagnosing um, any sort of like medical condition or mental health condition, which I think is, you know, a lot of people probably assume that that's what you're doing why and why they're invoking the Goldwater rule. But can you explain why that's not what you're doing and why the Goldwater rule really doesn't apply to the analysis that you are you are actually doing of Donald Trump um, and his rhetoric more so than like what physically is happening because you you obviously haven't um, you're not his doctor you haven't you know given him a, a, an exam or whatever. Uh, that's right. And thank you for making that very clear distinction, because I believe what the American Psychiatric Association was doing in its public campaign was playing on the public's uh, lack of distinction between what is a diagnosis and what is an assessment of danger or fitness, because uh, a diagnosis is a personal examination, a personal assessment where you are diagnosing and treating an individual in your office. But uh, psychiatrists and mental health experts are of course called to do a multiple, a multitude of other things, including uh, fitness evaluations and dangerousness assessments. And those are the things I do as a forensic psychiatrist. Those are actually done on behalf of the public or uh, the office, um, uh, or, or those who would be victimized, uh, not on the part of the, the patient. And in fact, there is no patient here because no one is purporting to be Donald Trump's personal treater. In fact, the moment we do a personal examination, he would become our patient and we would not be able to speak in the way that we do in the interests of the public, we would be bound by confidentiality laws and have to have his permission to speak about him. But here there is no doctor-patient relationship. In fact, there's a doctor-society relationship uh, in that as physicians, since the time of Hippocrates, we have had a societal obligation. And in the American Psychiatric Association's ethics code itself, it says we have a responsibility to patients as well as to society. Our responsibility is separate. And, and it was this kind of misinformation campaign, and I believe it was actually a deliberate misinformation campaign, that, this, that society was shortchanged of the critical information it needed to protect itself. And one of the one of the things that I think is important to, to highlight here, and I want to sort of dig into this, um, is your expertise is specifically in like gang leaders and, and the type of people who incite other people to commit acts of violence, like that charismatic, you know, mafia leader or gang leader or prison gang leader. Can you talk a bit about your expertise and how it actually applies to Donald Trump, because I don't think people sort of see that natural connection, but you did. And the reason why is because you were watching him and listening to the way that he engages with his base of supporters. And that's where the light bulb in your head went off. And you were like, oh, this looks more like what I am used to studying when I'm looking at prison gang leaders or gang leaders who are inciting other people 
to do really bad and violent things. Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, I grew up in New York City during the time when it was rather violent. And um, my reason for going to psychiatry in the first place was to try to study violence and to try to uh, reduce it. And I wish to do it in the context of human psychology. And so, uh, so even before psychiatry took on uh, violence as an area that it treats, um, I, was, I was gravitating toward it. And I happened to be present for the World Health Organization's launch of violence, uh, the study of violence as a public health issue and a health concern. And now, of course, it's widely accepted that it's a health concern and, and health professionals ought to be involved in it. Um, in fact, health professionals involvement has allowed us to diminish and reduce violence at unprecedented levels in human history by intervention through laws, uh, nationwide programs, services, uh, reforms of police, um, strengthening of laws. Uh, these are the kinds of things that have been tried throughout the world and in fact now studied of what reduces violence dramatically. So we know how to prevent it, but prevention is key. If we intervene early on, we can reduce a tremendous amount. Whereas if we intervene only after violence has occurred, it, uh, intervention will be very costly, very difficult and minimal in results. And of course, vast amounts of injury and trauma have already occurred. So in what way does Donald Trump engage with his base that leads them to do violent things? What, it is, what is it about what he's saying and how he's saying it that makes it different than, you know, somebody just hyping up a crowd, but then they don't like storm the Capitol. Like there's something different that he's doing. Um, and I think, I mean, I think back to like the rally in Chicago, I think it was in the 2016 campaign. And I remember I was standing when I was watching that rally live on TV, because I remember turning to my colleague on the campaign, I worked for Hillary Clinton. And I said, this feels like a Klan rally. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Um, no, sh no shade to that person, because I think everybody realizes now what I what I meant in that moment. But there was something about it that felt visceral for me. Like I had seen it before. It probably was in black and white in a movie that a documentary that I saw about American history. Um, but there was something about it where it felt like it felt like it. He was trying to incite violence. So how does he how is he able to do that? Like, what is he doing that makes people want to go break stuff? Yes, absolutely. I think your observations were critical. You were sensing viscerally, uh, and and often communities and uh, and uh, individuals who have been exposed to violence can recognize it perhaps better even than clinicians. Uh, and, but you were you were detecting viscerally what I could uh, buttress and support through scholarship, research, mm. and clinical experience. Uh, because my clinical practice has been in jails and prisons, uh, dealing with uh, violent offenders, gang leaders, and in fact, that's where I've encountered uh, the greatest number of uh, white supremacists and, and indeed those who would be clan leaders um, who uh, since um, since the late 1990s. And so uh, I was regularly exposed to them before they uh, took on more of a national um, uh, exposure. 
with with the coming of the Trump presidency. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's important to note that these are things that uh, such individuals cling to, that is racism and white supremacy uh, are often uh, things that uh, narcissistically or uh, or soci sociopathically inclined individuals who are prone to violence uh, cling to. And so, so the ideology is closely linked. Uh, but, but in terms of the dynamics, um, the difference between uh, this kind of violent uh, bonding, if you will, uh, among violent, violence-prone individuals, uh, and and simply a popular rally, of course, is a world of difference, and that is exactly the critical difference that mental health experts would have been able to explain that this was not a normal political rally. In fact, uh, the kind of frenzied, widespread. Uh, so-called popularity that we, you were seeing was not uh, popularity based on anything rational or political even, but rather an emotional, uh, a, a disorder that was being highlighted. And, and once mental pathology is able to take this kind of hold uh, in terms of power or influence, it becomes very difficult to contain and it's very destructive. As we have seen, there's been a widespread phenomenon of contagion of the uh, of Trumpism or uh, the, the Trump mentality uh, that is uh, putting our entire nation's democracy, uh, if not uh, existence into, into peril. And, and this is what distinguishes health from disease uh, or, or disease from health in that uh, pathological tendencies will um, result in destruction and death, whereas uh, healthy ideologies, no matter what the stance is, will be life affirming. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this is the distinction that uh, uh, mental health professionals were in the place to be able to make clearly and, and accurately, because that is what we do in our practice. We specialize in that practice day in and day out. Why why is violence used by Donald Trump or or those who are similar um, to Donald Trump? Why is violence the way that they try to reach their goal? Like, I don't un even understand that. Yes. Uh, well, violence can have many causes, but uh, but in this situation, it is uh, the reliance on uh pathological narcissistic defenses essentially to uh, fight against an inner sense of uh, worthlessness, inadequacy, and shame uh, that drives Donald Trump and his followers. Uh, of course, uh, I've also spoken about the narcissistic symbiosis that happens between him and his followers that, that psychologically wounded individuals in this manner will have a magnetic attraction to one another. And they buttress one another in their uh, fantasy, if you will, uh, of being superior to others when in fact, um, deep down they, they do recognize that um, they, are, they are lacking 
in many ways. Of course, they, they have abilities as well, but they're not able to harness abilities because, because of this tendency. So they try to overcompensate and fall into delusion, really. Delusion in the sense of uh, clinging to cherished and fixed false beliefs, no matter the evidence and no matter the reality. And when reality encroaches on them, as it eventually will, and, um, and they can no longer hold on to that, hold on to those false beliefs, then, uh, then they will lash out and try to, to hold on to those beliefs at any cost. And in the end, it will lead to violence because it's not based on anything legitimate. In a lot of ways, I mean, I've been thinking about what you were saying about um, how sort of violence and death is 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 normalized in a particular way if you get sort of on the path um, that you're describing. Um, and it feels in some ways like COVID is also and should be sort of in this conversation, too, because there's something about... Um, you know, like, I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm just going to breathe all over your face. And then if you die, that's fine. That's on you. It's too bad. Grandma's dead. Like, who cares? There's something that feels violent about that, too. <laughs> um, and I don't know if you've sort of done an analysis of the pandemic and how some of these um, traits that you're talking about in Donald Trump and also how he communicates with his supporters, but also the the fact that many of his supporters in COVID, you know, have... Um, acted violently. We've all seen those videos online of people coughing in other people's faces or like, you know, making fun of people who are wearing masks trying to protect themselves. I mean, is that a manifestation of the same underlying issues or is that something different? Because there's something about this entire idea that sort of your warning was in the realm of public health that makes me feel like COVID might be also related and might be a manifestation of the same problems. Yes, that's incredibly insightful, and 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 thank you for making that uh, comparison. I'm actually astonished at your ability to do so, uh, because indeed many do not see that connection. But uh, since March of 2020, I wrote uh, an op-ed in the Independent that outlines exactly how uh, uh, how uh, the worsening of the viral pandemic, the COVID pandemic, was precipitated by a mental health pandemic. Mm. Um, and if, uh, and I will direct your listeners to my website, bandylee.com, B-A-N-D-Y-L-E-E.com. Uh, and if they scroll down to nearly the bottom, uh, there is an article, there's a link to the article called mental health pandemic, the Trump mental health pandemic, mm. which outlines exactly how uh, we were able to predict his disastrous management of the viral pandemic uh, based on his the spread of his mental health pandemic. And the two are absolutely parallel. One preceded the other, but uh, and one is more dangerous than the other, and the more dangerous one is the mental health pandemic. Uh, but also their dynamics are very similar in that uh, what people had a hard time understanding perhaps in the beginning was that uh, pandemics are exponential. If you don't contain them in the beginning, according to science and according to uh, our research that we have available, then it will spiral out of control. 
And that is very much what happened also to the Trump mental health pandemic or, or the psychic pandemic that, uh, that I have also described. Um, and this phenomenon of contagion mm -hmm. that is often discounted, even in the psychiatric field, because psychiatry is now so wedded to the pharmaceutical industry that it will not acknowledge anything that is outside of uh, something that can be treated with medications. Uh, this is a phenomenon that has been well known in the literature since 150 years ago, that some mental symptoms are indeed contagious. Hmm. That is really scary because I feel like I see that. <laughs> I feel like I see that. Um, so, so that scares me a little bit. Um, I feel, yeah. you know, some days I, I feel I, like I, I'm like, I'm seeing the matrix. Does anybody else see it? And I, and I get worried um, because you're I'm, certainly I, oh very perceptive. Uh, if I may add, yes. that also points to hope because we know of the interventions that are effective in mental health pandemics or, or epidemics uh, and uh, the spread of mental symptoms. And we can apply it here also. Uh, we know that mental symptoms are actually more contagious than viral ones because you do not need physical proximity in order to get it, catch it. Um, it you, you simply need uh, public exposure, which is, uh, through the uh, airwaves, through the internet, uh, television, and social media. We know, of course, Donald Trump has had far more exposure than almost any other president. And, um, uh, and we know that that is how it spreads, and that is how it can be contained. In other words, reducing his exposure, discrediting him in public. So there has been a lot of talk about whether or not to indict him for his crimes, really truly egregious crimes. And that's without even going into the, the his management, mismanagement of uh, the viral pandemic that has resulted uh, in a vast majority of the million and more American deaths that could have been prevented. Um, but even for the other crimes that have been highlighted and outlined lately, there's mm -hmm. been a lot of talk about whether or not to indict him, whether indicting him because it would um, invoke a lot of uh, violent reaction in his followers, uh, whether that would in more danger. I would say that it would actually prevent a great deal of danger in the future. Uh, we've gotten ourselves to a point where danger is present no matter what but indicting him and the sooner we indict him and the sooner he, we take him into custody mm. that the spread of the, the psychic pandemic will, uh, will be curtailed. And in fact, we observe this in the uh, setting of street gangs of, um, of families in the community that individuals, the spread of symptoms happens usually when individuals um, are given a lot of exposure and uh, their symptoms are not intervened with to the point where they've become very severe. It happens with individuals and families or with um, those of Donald Trump symptoms and street gangs. Uh, the moment they are taken into the hospital or into custody and removed from those they're closely tied to, those who had adopted his or her symptoms and when they while during the exposure they look they almost look exactly like the person who has the primary illness and would look like they have the disorder themselves 
But the distinction is once you remove the primary, the individual with the primary illness or the offending agent, then the other individuals return to their baseline. In, in fact, uh, return to normal uh, over time. Uh, the, the cases I have seen were almost instantaneous. It's quite dramatic to observe actually. Uh, in the case of the nation, it may take a little time and it may also take a, a little more than Donald Trump because it mm. spreads so much among other politicians and other influential individuals that um, we may need to take into custody more than just him, uh, may need to include his close associates also. Mm -hmm. uh, but once we do that, I think we will see a dramatic reduction in uh, the kind of frenzied um, uh, move toward irrationality and spread of it that we're, we are seeing now. And the second, uh, uh, second factor that we should not ignore is the environment, the, the kind of media environment that thrives on, on spreading disinformation and false reality that, that, uh, that tries to cash in on this phenomenon is, is really destructive and something perhaps needs to be done about the media environment as well. But, but those are the kinds of solutions that I see. I understand what you're saying as a person who is in the media. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. That's what I have to say about that. Um, this has been a very, very um, fascinating conversation. I feel like I learned a lot. Um, and I'm going to continue to just read into um, a lot of what you're saying because I think, well, combined with an article I was reading over the weekend about how people's brain chemistry is changing because of COVID infections and their the size of their brain is changing and their personalities may be changing. I mean, there's some research that's starting in that area. I am very scared about what happens in this next sort of phase here, um, just because there yes. are a lot of different factors that are scaring me. Um, but I, I feel a lot better now that I understand the Donald Trump piece of it. Um, so Dr. Benny Lee, thank you so much for being here. I'd love to have you back. Um, you know, as these months go by, because I am nervous about uh, the incitement of violence if there is an indictment. But um, I think that it's important for us to understand um, the psychiatric perspective of this as well. I mean, Mary Trump's book combined with you, I feel like I have a good handle <laughs> on, on Donald Trump. So assistant professor of psychology, psychiatry at Yale previously. Um, Dr. Bandy Lee, author of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. Thank you so much for being here this morning. I really appreciate it. Um, it was really great to have you on. I learned so much from this conversation. Well, it was a great pleasure for me to be here. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday. 